0: Okay. Okay. Hi everyone, how are you today? Good. Good. Excellent, so uh, we're here today to talk about modern game accessibility, uh, changing sympathy to solution. Um, There we go, look at that. Uh, And just as a quick disclaimer, um, we sincerely hope this presentation is uh, beneficial to everyone, but as a caveat, uh, much of what we're gonna discuss today came from our experiences working with Naughty Dog uh, and uh, building Uncharted 4 uh, and Uncharted The Lost Legacy. Uh, and our current project, uh, *The Last of Us* Part Two. Want to go, Gults?
1: Sure. You want to give us the first one? So, um, really, what we're trying to do here is just tell you a little bit about the process that we went through at Naughty Dog. Um, we had a really uh, great situation there because it really wasn't um, a lot about the two of us trying to bring accessibility to Naughty Dog. It was about Naughty Dog trying to bring accessibility to their game. And um, we were just in a really good place at a good time. And um, tried to sort of um, add to that by doing some of these things. We tried to really um, give them some boosts where they needed them. Um, for one, uh, mm-hmm. although there was a lot of excitement about trying to make the game more accessible, there were some ways in which uh, certain parts of the team could use uh, a little more understanding of accessibility issues, changing the perception of accessibility. Um, We really wanted to give the development partners there at Naughty Dog the opportunity to understand what people needed. Um, And uh, also, um, we had the benefit of having a a lot of information from other uh, successful games and, uh, and from people who knew what to do in the accessibility world and so we had some design principles available to us and we, um, from, from all of the industry really and we wanted to try to update those to the Naughty Dog situation, try to help them with that. Um, and finally to um, also um, provide some methodology for going about trying to make the game more accessible. There wasn't a real understanding of what a process would be for trying to bring some of these things to the game. So that's another thing we tried to work on there. Um, and uh, then, of course, there are best practices from um, all the people in, in this room that I see on smiling faces and from uh, people uh, all over the world, <laughs> thank you, uh, that are smiling around.
0: <laughs> that's, that's a good way to go. Yeah. Uh, so who are we? Uh, Handsome, <coughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Kevin? So <coughs> um,
1: so I'm a user researcher, um, meaning that I don't really in particular know anything about accessibility, but I have been trying to make products more usable for the past 25 years. And um, that's, that's really what I bring to this, and I had the great pleasure of working with Sam uh, in a production capability. I'll let Sam tell you a little bit more about. You, you,
0: you, uh, you blush, I blush. Uh, so my name is Sam Thompson. I'm a senior producer, managing senior producer for Worldwide Studios. Uh, I've been working with uh, Naughty Dog since the days of Crash 2 when I was a tester for that product and have come through the ranks over the years. Uh, I also have not 25, 20 years experience working with Sony. I started back in 1998 um, when we were on the PS1 uh, and of course, outside of the Naughty Dog franchises, I've also worked with Resistance, Siphon Filter, uh, Spyro, Crash, and uh, Sly Cooper.
1: Cool. I was Set gonna off. have like this big scrolling list of all the games that I worked on. <laughs> yes, but then
0: <laughs> it I became an arms Sam race. More games. Yeah. Than, <laughs> I'm
1: really sure
0: there are a lot of other people in here that have more than us. <laughs>
1: but,
0: uh, uh, so we all want accessibility. And that's the bottom line.
1: Um, the other thing we'd like to point out is that uh, what we were able to do on the Naughty Dog game and what we're going to talk about today really is part of <coughs> a, uh, I think, a larger um, wave hopefully. Ian talked about this earlier this morning. And, um, I like to be part of that wave of trying to bring more accessible aid to games. And so um, this is something that I-, that I think really is, there are a lot of opportunities for it. And so when we talk about all these things today, um, we're not trying to tell you we're probably almost certainly not telling you anything new, not trying to tell you uh, be a few how new to things. do something. No, we're totally telling about a new <laughs> start. Are there some new things? Yeah, there is. OK, good. probably put some in late last night or yeah, something like that. Okay. Um, in any case, uh, you know, Microsoft is out there doing great work. EA is out there doing great All kinds of people are out there doing great work. And um, so um, when we see quotes like this, it's extremely heartwarming uh, for us. It really. Um, it let's us know that, uh, that uh, we're in this uh, together to try to make games that everyone can play.
0: You wrote something fancy, which is uh, there's a revolution led by empowered development teams and publishers that is pushing the boundaries of accessibility and transcending traditional console boundaries. I, just, I didn't want to waste that. No, that's
1: so. very fancy. So. I like
0: that. Uh, so, our, our first kind of point that we wanted to discuss is uh, use DevSpeak to increase ownership. Um, and a lot of what we do is kind of like Caesar Milan here in Dog Whisperer. Uh, I don't know how many people have played this title, but uh, the play on words is what we're looking for. Uh, you know, Naughty Dog, Dog Whisperer, that kind of thing. See what we did. Um, there's a great quote from Alex. Um, yeah, she's wonderful, and um, she's really kind of pointing out the urgency uh, for what the, the dev teams are looking at and where, where we are in this process and understanding when in the pipeline they need to start doing it. And it's been kind of a common thread today that I've heard uh, James spoke of it earlier, and there's been some other folks that spoke, uh, referred to it as well. And this is basically saying that uh, we need to do it right away. Um, the moment you start uh, with your first prototype, the first gray box, uh, sandbox level you have, you need to start thinking about accessibility. And so how does that fit into the development process? Well, some things to consider when approaching this concept uh, of accessibility with your dev team uh, is to allow the dev teams to prioritize features based on team strength. And then you want to work within your dev schedule uh, And you want to test that and your test schedule as well. Both of these things are absolute. If you're building features and systems, but you're not actually aligning them with your development schedule, then you're not going to have any way of prototyping them and validating them to see if they're effective. Um, One of the great things that we were able to do with Uncharted 4 uh, and UTLL was to design all of our accessibility features in lockstep with our production schedule, which helped us tremendously. Another thing to consider uh, is uh, consider resources, scope, and budget. Everything has to come within. You allow uh, uh, everything has to come within the team flexibility to be able to implement and iterate on these features. So if you don't have the manpower assigned, if you don't have the budget, if you don't have the scope, then you have to go back and rethink that feature. Or you have to go back and talk to your team to try to figure out how you're going to make this work. Believe in the flexibility of implementation. Just because the first implementation doesn't work, the first iteration may have a ton of bugs, but it's how you iterate of that over time that's going to get you to the promised land and where you need to be with that feature. And nothing is worth throwing away. There's always something good through uh, playing with different implementations and seeing how they work within the larger systemic universe. One of the things we're going to show you today uh, is kind of the work that we did with the lock picking system on UTLL, and this was a new system that was added to the Lost Legacy after Uncharted 4 shipped, and it was using kind of this haptic feedback early on, where you have to do- use the analog stick to kind of find the sweet spot in the different lock. Uh, the different lock pistons so that you can unlock each one uh, in order. Uh, but the first iteration of this was we already knew that this was going to be an accessibility nightmare and that what it was requiring was a fine motor skill engagement that a lot of people actually wouldn't have and it would be really demanding on players. So by aligning this with design very early, we were able to do uh, about six months' worth of iteration. We work with consultants like Josh and other folks to come into the studio and actually play test this for us and take that into usable iterations that we eventually were able to find a real solution for. This first iteration, for example, displayed a range that would visually shrink over time. You had to keep the cursor within that range to succeed. A few weeks later, we had a range that would move around and kind of the player would have to chase it, which was no good. Uh, And if you made one mistake in the whole process, you would go all the way back to the beginning, which is punishing for the player, because it would take them at times 15 to 20 minutes to successfully pick that lock, which was crazy. Um, I think we actually have a video demonstrating some of this stuff. Maybe not.
1: Yeah, we do. It's it going to kind of show you where it, the
0: feature ended up. Well, no, this is the very first. So, it, oh. ignore the dates. We had to go back to old builds and recapture. Oh, sorry. Huh? It's not the video, no, this is the uh, this is the very first one I found. Yeah, this is old school. Um, so then the next iteration so that's showing kind of an early iteration of what we tried to do um, it didn't work out too well for us um, we had a lot of feedback like maybe it was too simple uh, this, the second iteration it, it wouldn't reset right um, the point here is that we went too far the other direction of oversimplifying the mechanic the first feedback we had on the initial implementation was that it was way too difficult. There were too many systems at play that were causing problems for the consumer. We went too far the other direction. Once again, there were problems. If we would have been at the end of the development cycle, we would have had to ship like this and it would have been done. Uh, but luckily for us, uh, we had more time to iterate, luckily. And um, with that, we found kind of a happy medium where we, we, you still feel around. You can no longer fail uh, a tumbler if you go past it. Uh, more tumblers added, locks as you progress. Uh, some locks inherently have more tumblers than others. Anyway, we've used a lot of data to come up with a system that was much more appropriate. No. Is that the last one? Almost. There's a couple more on the alley. Gripping. Gripping. <laughs>
1: I mean, one of the really obvious things you can see here in that video is just the transition from earlier stages where we were relying entirely on vibration um, in order Haptic to know yeah. what was going on, and and now in these later iterations, even at a high level, you can see that you've got visual feedback as well as the tactile feedback as well as right. um, as well as some subtle audio. Uh, feedback that is going to be helpful for people as well.
0: So the key items here are essentially synchronized approaching the problem with your team, uh, implementation schedule of the mechanic, you want to align usability testing with your production schedule to reinforce data-driven decision making, Uh, and sunk versus opportunity cost. You want to invest the team uh, into the process of creating the right decision, uh, the right mechanic on the onset versus trying to retrofit a mechanic after the fact because it's far cheaper to do it through your development schedule, then to have to go back and try to fix things three weeks for final, when you're dealing with a lot of other big issues that you're trying to tackle. And I don't think
1: we would have got there if we hadn't learned what we learned from Uncharted 4 either, so that we were ready at the start of The Lost Legacy to take a look at all of the different mechanics, especially the ones that were unusual from the core mechanics, and say, what are going to be the issues here, and let's pay special attention to those things. So again, fitting into the schedule and thinking about it ahead of time and learning from your mistakes. Very useful. Um, So now I'd like to show you a little different thing. One of the things that we have access to are some great um, uh, set of best practices and guidelines from (laughs) Mark Friend, works at Sony also. And um, part of it that was particularly influential for us was um, this drawing that Mark made um, about the different kinds of uh, disabilities, I guess, that are the standard or expected um, disabilities that you might want to solve for. Um, They're grouped into three different categories because if you go to the next little bit, you'll see that um, Mark has translated these things into um, different kinds of parts of the game experience, essentially, so he's he's grouped. vision issues and audio issues together as issues that have to do with problems receiving the stimulus or taking in some element of what the game is trying to tell you. Um, Of course in the middle you do some processing and that's where you might see uh, some difficulties people have cognitive issues. And then there are also issues potentially in the response that a person has uh, to it. So being able to provide your input. If you have (coughs) motor difficulties or speech difficulties, that's a a place where you may have difficulty providing an input. It's a subtle shift in the way that you look at uh, disability issues, but it's very powerful for us, because what we then were able to do is think about this from the standpoint (coughs) of the different disciplines that we work with at Naughty Dog and start to try to find owners for issues that exist, so people could feel, again, empowered to take on something. One of the things that we really noticed is that we all want accessibility, um, but not everyone knows how to go about it. And um, a lot of people are looking for guidance and for leadership, or at least understanding when it's their problem, when it is something that they should be doing something about or finding a solution for it. <coughs> And so assigning, assigning um, breaking down the issues that, that you witness that are accessibility problems and um, talking about what kind of issue it is for the experience and then giving it to the person whose job it is to make that experience good can be a very important first step
0: one of the terrorist presentations i believe last year uh, showed the evolves team list of accessibility features and how they kind of stack ranked everything and one of the problems that we found at the naughty dog side was that those terminologies can be really overwhelming and when you're trying to to explain uh, different uh, disability segments and what these different things mean, um, finding ownership within the team is virtually impossible. So to be able to translate that to dev speak and say, OK, it's UX. It's a system designer. It's a gameplay designer. Now we can actually make uh, meaningful progress in trying to address these issues.
1: And it's actually kind of comforting for the team to be like, oh, that's my issue. Good. <laughs> exactly. I right. got it. Now okay. I can we'll mix. do something about that. Exactly. <laughs> um, so an- another thing uh, that we noticed when we're especially when we're trying to go out and look at all of the great ideas that are out there for how to try to manage accessibility issues is that in some cases there can be some um, rejection of potential solutions because they're prescribing design or they're sort of telling the designer what to do or how to solve a particular problem and if you work in the games industry for more than a little while, you'll realize that telling a designer what to do is not very effective. Yeah. Um, but they—they're great at solving problems, and they really want to. They just want to figure out how they're yeah. going to do they that. They want to be empowered to do it themselves. Yeah, empowered to do it themselves. So, just going to tell a quick story about um, saving, and one of the things that's seen out uh, in the world is and I've done this myself, is complain about save points um, or the lack thereof. It can be very painful for any user. And it can be especially painful if um, maybe uh, you need to go more slowly through a process or you you need to take your time and master something and then move on to the next thing. So um, uh, if, like me, you've seen a number of people suggest that a great solution to a save point problem would be to allow people to save everywhere. Um, Then you may also have seen some of the comments that come back after that suggestion is made. A lot of comments um, say, well, no, there's a save point there for a reason. They're saving uh, when you choose to allow the player to save their progress uh, or to spawn or respawn from a death some experience, it's a very important part of the challenge uh, design in a game very often. So um, so uh, what I another observation I was making is that um, people do have a tendency, when they're thinking about trying to make a solution to a problem, to want to redo it completely from scratch. Um, no, I've got a great plan for this. I don't know why they had that plan in the first place. We just have to throw it all out and start over brand new, or use this, this different model, the save everywhere model. Um, and it also may not be completely obvious that uh, saving a game at any point in time would be a big change to the <coughs> fundamental way that most games are coded and developed. It would be a huge architectural change. So um, what we're suggesting is that if you're thinking about um, this kind of model Um, it might be more appropriate to take a look at the design, figure out the places where the design is not working. So those spots where you maybe have to run for miles and miles after dying just to get back to the point where you can jump off the cliff the wrong way again. Or in a boss battle um, perhaps it's extremely difficult for a long period of time and when you finally get past 75% of that boss battle, and then die, you don't want to go back and do the entire thing. Those are examples of things where the save point is tedious, they can be determined. Go tell the designer that that save point in particular is tedious, and let them figure out a way to deal with that problem, as opposed to thinking first of changing the whole architecture. Save when needed. Save when needed.
0: There you go. (laughs) That's it. Um, uh, So again, that's reinforcing the principle that if you build enough time in your schedule and you're working with your design team, um, all of these things you can iterate over time through usability testing. Um, For the last project alone, I think we spent about 25 weeks at the studio uh, testing the product. So we have from Graybox from very early on, we have the ability to prototype and fully test a lot of different directions on a lot of different features. And this provides us a lot of flexibility in terms of experimentation as well as final implementation. Um, so it's just it's key that you start early and try to dedicate enough time over the schedule to fully iterate on those features. Um, one of the great folks that we met last year uh, at the GA conference was Brandon Cole. And, uh, Brandon Cole uh, is um, visually impaired. And he uh, had a great talk about his experiences playing games and what he looks for uh, in the products. And Alex and Em, we were very taken by his his presentation. And so we asked him to come out to the studio and um, to spend some time with the design team and actually show them how he plays the games that he had talked about and then have him play our games a little bit and really start a dialogue as to how we can make uh, sightless gaming possible uh, in our future products. And it was just, in order to uh, really kind of generate momentum on the team level, you have to empower, and you have to inspire them. And the way to do that is to get folks into the studio and actually show them examples of how folks have found ways to play games with unintended accessibility. Uh, and with this in mind, we have a video that we'd like to share of uh, we'll his get, play I'll, session.
1: I'll that, too, we actually are doing the thing. Uh, Because if you notice, sound effect. Mm -hmm. And and announcer uh, dialogue there, but if I move to another character, oh, no, that's not the right one. Oh, there we go.
0: Loading. Maybe we should. Not sure. It says two minutes. Okay. I'd rather skip part of mine. <laughs> nope. We're going to watch one more round, just because it's so impressive. Yeah, I have no mercy for Blanche. out
1: there. <laughs> that's, that's actually not really what I was initially going for, There is a really awesome brutality I was going to try to do, It was not being very nice about it, so I was like, all right, you're done. Well, all of those elements, including the trophy popping up at the end there, have a sound effect associated with them, and that's the way that Brandon's able to do that, and he's, his ability to show us this so elegantly. It's just incredibly powerful as a way to get people in the studio to see what we're talking about and to, to see what they're trying to accomplish in Right,
0: process. to empower the team to make change. Uh, once it demystifies everything that they're trying to conceptualize, they can see it firsthand, and then it's a call to action. Yeah. And uh, people are still energized from that visit yeah. uh, months and months later, which is yeah. really great.
1: Um, so there are uh, an array Five of- Five minutes. Five minutes left. Okay. Yeah. So there's um, a number of features in here, and one thing that we really wanted to point out is another example of this is having a Josh Straub talk with people in the studio and talk with us and, and uh, point out some of the issues that he faces has been very influential and, kind of and eye-opening to try to understand what some of the things are that can be changed. Repeated button presses is um, a good example of something that was blocking a person, Josh in this case, from finishing the game. And we were able to change that once we knew where it is, uh, so that it could be made into a toggle. So um, another point to make is that not all of the changes that you're going to want to, or all of the custom features that you might want to provide for people are going to be applicable all the time in your game. So in in Uncharted, there's a lot of uh, combat, with a gun, but there's also a lot of driving around, and they're intermixed. And um, one of the original uh, ways that we had uh, for making the game more accessible was to be able to um, swap sticks, it was called, which meant that you could um, control things that usually were controlled by the left stick with the right stick. And that was very helpful to (coughs) Josh in particular, because of his particular accessibility issues. And, um, But what was not so helpful is that um, when you swap the sticks, it makes it so that it's really good for aiming, which you could then do on the left stick instead of the right stick, but it's really bad for driving, because driving is controlled by the movement stick, which is the right stick, so that was flipping it away from where Josh wanted to control it. So instead, doctoring this, um, this the solution was not really very complicated, it was just making sure that this um, change only occurred in those cases where you want it to occur, and um, but you know we never would have known that if we didn't have this dialogue with Josh with gamers who have issues and try to really understand what they are because we were making a lot of assumptions about what the right <coughs> thing to do was based on limited knowledge i'm guessing <laughs> um, another uh, interesting point is uh, th- again this was really brought home by our interactions with Josh was um, <coughs> kind of going through actually making up a, a, a list of things to really uh, focus on for the team with lost legacy and um, and I was kind of making the same mistake that I made before again thinking about um, an, an imaginary um, a person basically had a particular need in mind which was to use the stick one-handed or to use the controller one-handed and I believe that that meant that they would want (coughs) to have lock-on aiming as well as being able to swap which stick was in control as well as perhaps camera assist or other this other collection of stuff. And um, in fact, I was really wrong. again. Uh, about wanting to necessarily use all of those things for all people who had that particular condition. Because, as it turns out, in Josh's case, he didn't want to use (coughs) lock-on aiming because it's a very important part of the game. Aiming is fun and challenging, and it's a big part of the experience. And he didn't want to use lock-on aiming if he didn't have to. And he didn't have to as long as he had some of these other things. And we saw this again in spades when we brought in um, we brought in six people one on one day to play the game and give us feedback. And I think they all had motor, small motor uh, issues. And of those six, something like four or five of them five. didn't use any of the features that we had created with them in mind, with that particular disability in mind. Um, and it was for the same set of reasons that, that Josh made me fully understand so eloquently. It's because They had, um, aiming was a core part of the experience. A lock-on actually can be a disadvantage because it uh, doesn't give you a chance to have a headshot, and headshots are very useful in combat. And uh, then finally, uh, all of these people had (laughs) been struggling with these issues for a long time, and they'd figured out their own ways to deal with it. So um, they didn't need that particular feature. Not that we were going to take it out, because there are other people who may, but we needed to provide enough subtlety that people could um, choose the right thing at the right time for the right person. We're
0: going to skip through that. Okay. Uh, And and for uh, observation of time, we're going to move a little bit quicker and hopefully we can cram everything in. I just Mm -hmm. talk way too slowly. It's my own fault. Um, Broaden your thinking about accessibility. Uh, A great quote by Amelia, I'm sure you've heard it before. Uh, (laughs) 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 Identify core disciplines that can help promote your initiatives. And this is just knowing who to talk to within the team, right? If it's a UI artist, a system designer, gameplay design, uh, understand the people that can best uh, spearhead your initiatives. Um, usage percentage aren't always the best way to empower the team. Uh, a lot of analytics are great, but sometimes those uh, percentages can be deceiving. So make sure that you understand in what context you're using usage percentages, because sometimes 2.8% adoption isn't a negative thing, it's a positive thing. But if you Uh, position it incorrectly, it will be perceived incorrectly. And then, of course, find champions to spearhead initiatives and find ways to connect with your team to make it meaningful. Really quickly, I think Jason and I are on the same page. Uh, We also know Clint Lexa and uh, have coordinated, and he's awesome, and we're just going to leave it at that. Um, Let's see. Uh, So a couple more things make the issues relatable. Uh, The whole point of the Clint Alexa thing was our QA group is really into done quickly. Uh, They were able to really get excited about this. The new Clint was a big accessibility gamer. Hi, Jason. Uh, And so all of this stuff was working out really well. And we were able to really empower our QA team who then kind of spread infectiously out to the other departments uh, because they were so empowered by speed running. focus on the barriers instead of disabilities. Uh, going back to uh, Kevin's original slide, if you can speak to it and democratize it in a way that uh, positions it as accessibility for everyone, uh, they will move uh, much more quickly in adopting those principles. Identify merge to, uh, moments to encourage the team contribution. At one point, when we had an accessibility group. We had a speaker uh, who was only Spanish-speaking only. And because we stream all of the accessibility uh, tests throughout the department, uh, we had an artist that came over and wasn't really engaged in accessibility, but saw it streaming at his desk, and was like, I can totally speak Spanish, I can help you out here, and he really got invested in the moment, uh, and he did some great work. Turns out uh, he was very
1: invested in accessibility, but just didn't even know what was happening until that moment.
0: He didn't know. We're not going to, you know, we're going to talk just well, Assassin's Creed, the whole uh, discovery mode we love, we think it's great, we were talking about, uh, broadening our thinking about difficulty settings, we're doing a lot of work at Naughty Dog tracking difficulty, play. Uh, where people die, how they die. We have a lot of analytics that we run. Um, I would encourage everyone to kind of throw away the convention of traditional difficulty settings. I think we need to evolve as a group. Um, There's a whole bunch more work we can do with puzzle difficulty, wayfinding difficulty, customizing combat, bespoke, a lot of what Jason talked about. Again, we're sharing a mind today. Um, uh, Bespoke gameplay modes like uh, driving or swimming, things like that. And then you can race through the rest of these. Um, you're doing such a good job. Yeah, no, here you go. No, no. I'm scared. Um, you can do this. Music on right? Yeah, that's, oh, we're two minutes over. We've got to hurry.
1: Okay. Uh, so I uh, mentioned this before, really, the essential idea is just that um, we're really talking about fixing issues in the game, uh, not people. Uh, all these people are the same. You all know this. I've seen other people make these points before. But you know, a gamer has difficulty hearing is essentially the same as a gamer with a sleeping baby in the next room, or a gamer uh, that's playing during a boring lecture. For example, <laughs> um, one thing that we're going to try to do more of in the future then is to bring people in to
0: uh, <laughs> yeah do stuff <laughs> and things bring people in recruit who for have issues p- specific
1: issues not because they have a, a particular impairment because we've seen before that um, just a, 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 an impairment doesn't Sorry, necessarily mean an uh, ability to do something and um, so we're going to try and do that in the future.
0: Um, oh Lordy! We
1: also uh, <laughs>
0: stuff and things.
1: Stuff and things. Um, this is is a good point. Actually, they all are. When we brought those um, <laughs> six people in, and five of them didn't play the game. We found that they were actually also not aware that the features were actually there. Um, so they didn't have the expectation that these accessibility features would be available, and that led to lots of ways of trying to highlight them, including putting. Uh, a lot of these slide features, slide. or some of the m- biggest features, into the startup sequence of the game so that they would be perceived as elements of playing the game for everyone, not as things that need to be hidden away in an options menu somewhere. Um, have we finally got through? We have. Yes. We're in a good place. And um, yes, you can see the slides and uh, read those later. But thank you. Thank you so much uh, for bearing with us. and.
0: There it is. Thank you all. Thank you.